Good evening from the Clark Athletic Center at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, and I welcome you to the first of three 90-minute debates between the Democratic candidate for president, Vice President Al Gore, and the Republican candidate, Governor George W. Bush of Texas. Debate prep is in full swing, and we continue on September 14th, Monday, on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, it is Bush versus Gore. Oh, we're putting it in a lockbox. We're going to sigh our way through this, and we won't forget Poland because the 2000 clash that started a thousand memes will be unspooled for you this Monday, September 14th. Follow me right now on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Download the app, get it on the web. Starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. I will see you Monday. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. We've got a show for you today. Uh, uh, Not only are we going to read through your emails, we are also going to discuss a little bit about um, 9-11. It is 9-11 today and 19 years ago. Uh, the most pivotal, pivotal moment in my journalistic career, in my, uh, life really happened. It's crazy. I feel like I've been 19 years an adult, uh, because that was a pivotal moment. And I'll talk a little bit about that and and where it does and doesn't connect to our, our current situation, which is, uh, equally crazy. We're also going to have an interview all about uh, the current Mideast policy, and uh, it is something that has evolved so much. Uh, I need to tell you guys before the interview that that more things have happened. So uh, it, it was recorded earlier in the week when we had heard about uh, the drawdown in Iraq. We're going to talk about the Israeli-United Arab Emirates peace deal. But even in that interview, uh, our our amazing guest says that uh, there was a rumor that Bahrain was going to normalize uh, Israeli relations, and now it looks like that has happened, at least as we are seeing now. That was not the case when we recorded the interview. And also, uh, we have drawn down troops in Afghanistan as well. So, a lot of stuff happening in the Middle East. We have a great interview about that coming up. But first... Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is lunchtime in London, 5 a.m. in Los Angeles, and 8 a.m. here in New York, live from the CNN Financial News headquarters. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? 
I'm going outside today. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet. It's too quiet. I often have, if not scripted, uh, very organized thoughts that I normally put in this segment. The first segment that I assume people are going to listen to and uh, think about. But every time I thought about something that I was going to do here, every time that I wrote out a little outline for my disgust with Congress not being able to get a COVID thing done or a revisiting of where we are with our current pandemic. Maybe even a local situation where I would uh, rail about the wildfires here that are choking out the Bay Area. I realized that it was going to pale uh, in comparison to what I really wanted to talk about. And, And I'm going to speak from my heart here and say that Uh, This is the 19th anniversary of 9-11. It is something that means a lot to a lot of different Americans because America's a very big country. America doesn't experience things the same way. In fact, it is unique that we believe we have anything in common at all. But we do. And so I don't presume to speak for somebody that... uh, you know, is experienced in a different way. And I know for a fact that anything that is as traumatic as 9-11 was means that there's going to be a million different spinoffs of why it happened and where it happened and uh, what it means and blah, blah, blah. All I can do is share my experience. And so here's my experience. I left high school as the class of 2001. I went to college. I spent the first two weeks of my time on campus uh, trying to work at the newspaper, the Daily Orange. So I did. And... I went and covered a city council meeting on Monday, September 10th as a contributor. I got it proofread and edited and tightened it up. And then the news editor at the time said, hey, do you want a job? The position of assistant news editor is yours. Meaning... I became a paid journalist in the waning hours of September 10th, 2001. And save for a few hours of blissful ignorance the next morning, I don't know if I ever knew that kid again. Because life changed and and the world wasn't shy about it. My moments of personal revelations almost exactly matched with revelations the world, or at least my world around me, was having. 
when the planes hit the towers and guys, I, I obviously I've, I've, I've leaned into doing a little bit of like some like production-y montage work uh, at the beginning of these segments just to kind of give them a little bit of grandiosity. I got to tell you, I, I, I went through a lot of audio before I decided on just doing the blissfully ignorant intros that television news had the day before they were going to realize what was happening. Because when I listen to TSA has a whole montage of just air traffic control and calls that members of uh, the, the two planes that went into the towers were calling to their families, 911 operator speaking to people in the Twin Towers. I, I couldn't do it. And I didn't realize that 19 years later it would still affect me like this. There was an immediate realization that came to me as I was walking back from my canceled class when everybody realized what was happening that I had a job to do. That's probably the moment. That's probably the moment that things kind of changed for me. I never looked at news the same again after that because I realized that while everybody else was processing it, I, I couldn't. In fact, perversely, I was being given a gift I could now look at this national tragedy as something that was not simply a national tragedy. No, I could help benefit the world if I helped synthesize it. If I helped add facts to the yawning maw of chaos. So I... <laughs> Called my my boss, who I had uh, she she had offered me the job the night before, and I said, so I I guess I should come in. She's like, yeah, yeah, you should. I didn't leave the office for a week. I slept on the couch. There was never not a thing to do, with half the staff out in Washington D.C. or New York City. I was immediately thrown into a more leadership role. Some of you might have heard me tell this story, but the first job I had as a paid journalist was to call the numbers of Syracuse University alums that we knew worked in the Pentagon because that was public knowledge. It's, not, it's harder to track down people in the World Trade Center because those are private businesses, but the Pentagon, you know. You know the people that work in the, in, in the government building. So it was my job to call and see if they were alive. There was a really quick introduction to the bizarre inhumanity of journalism. You have a hard time mustering up any kind of uh, fidgeting in your stomach to call other sources when you have cold dialed what might be on the other line a 911 widow on 911 
But mostly, I remember the shell shock. It wasn't long before word started to circulate about whose parents had died. Uh, Syracuse draws its student base largely from New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey feed into Manhattan, commuter areas for Manhattan, and some people, you know, their dads were just there. And then their dads were no more. And yet, there they were. The same 20-something I knew before that now had to deal with it. You just watch everything shift. You watch the world turn over. I didn't cry about 9-11 until maybe a month afterward. My cousin used to work in the World Trade Center and did up until his office no longer existed when the World Trade Centers came down. He was late for work. <laughs> and so he didn't come in. I was watching TV about a month after everything had happened, and, and this is after countless news stories and coverage, and, and, and this is something from inside kind of the journalistic perspective, but like when you cover big news and you feel like you're doing it well and you look at it, there's a lot of like suppressed emotions that come up in these prideful ways. Like you feel, in, in journalism's a very ego-depleting field, you're often doing things that you feel are, if not hurting other people, you're annoying other people. You are you are behaving in a way that is abnormal from polite society. Polite society doesn't usually call somebody at their weakest moment and ask them to explain it for the world. But as a journalist, that's your job. You have to do it. There is a necessity for it. And so when you're covering something hard, or challenging, or fast-moving, and you feel good about the product you put out, it generates, like, like pride. Like, like not even just pride. Like, you're like a... a you're somebody that, that is, like, thumping their chest. Like, like, you did a thing. You feel good. This is, like, top of your game... Good. And and part of that adrenaline, at least for me, I now understand was a way to get through the fact that I wasn't processing what was in front of my head as a human. Because you have to suppress some of that. You have to look at 9-11. This is the biggest news story of my life. And not, oh my God, this is horrible. You're 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 jotting down. I remember somewhere, God, there might be a notebook still that exists. Of, of me jotting down everything during 9-11 and, and remember, I remember writing like six, 7,000. 
That was the amount of dead initially kind of reported. Usually that stuff is always overreported at, at, at the beginning. But the point is I'm not processing what 7,000 people dead are. I'm making sure I get that number right. That's probably the best way that I can describe the kind of journalistic mindset. So I've done that. I've ridden off this adrenaline. I've slept on this this ratty ass couch in uh, uh, the, the 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 DO offices, and then about a month later, I'm watching news, and there is a, an establishing shot of New York City, and it's a bunch of people with candles and there were some areas of New York that were just covered with missing posters missing like you didn't know whether or not they were coming home and for this one moment I just saw not two strangers holding up a missing poster of another stranger. I saw my aunt and uncle and the picture was of my cousin. And that was the first moment I cried. That was the first moment that I kind of dealt with it as a human and not somebody who was covering a news story. I don't think that the United States is particularly we're not a self-reflective nation. We're a nation that moves forward. And in a lot of ways, that's a tremendous benefit. In other ways, it is a tremendous detriment. Because we're destined to forget 9-11. We're destined to have it become less potent. And for those that weren't particularly close to it and really define 9-11 by the ramifications of it, then that feeling might even turn adversarial. There's also the undeniable feeling of, of what we, how much we want to tie this to where we are now and how much we've changed. I think we would have a harder time going to war. Afghanistan was going to happen. Like Osama bin Laden and, and anybody close to Osama bin Laden was going to get it eventually. Uh, uh, somebody, somebody was taking the collar for that. But Iraq, I think, would be a harder sell today. The mainstream media does not hold the stroke it did before. Paul Krugman, who's stupid tweeted something stupid saying that America did not become particularly Islamophobic in the wake of 9-11. One of the first calls I made, and I was reminded about this when I talked about 9-11 on another podcast that I did by a friend of mine, but one of the first calls I made was to one of my friends in high school, a Pakistani dude named Mosin. And I told him just to not leave the house because I was afraid. I was hearing reports that, you know, Muslims were being attacked and 
stuff like that. And I, I just, I didn't want that for my friend. I remember, I mean, hell, the only time I have ever been harassed, the only time I ever felt profiled in my life was after 9-11 flying back to Florida. Because this is before TSA had really standardized a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I'm a, a, a young lad of 19. I have a, a bit of a scraggly beard. You know, if you've never seen a picture of me, I, I have a bit of a swarthy complexion. And every time I flew, the enhanced security that we were being pulled out of line for enhanced security was like me, four other Muslim dudes, and one random white grandma. They would always get the one random white grandma, like just to make it look a little bit, but it was me and four Muslim dudes. Always, always. The only time I've ever gotten harassed at a bar, racially at a bar, was after 9-11, and a dude thought I was Muslim. Started yelling at me. I was befuddled. I walked up to him and said, do you think I'm Muslim? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm not. And he's like, oh, sorry, man. So I would advise that for all of my, all of my, all of my Muslim listeners and friends. Just roll up. Next time someone's racist to you, just be like, oh, do you think I'm this? And they'll be like, yeah. Just say, I'm not. And they'll be like, oh. Well, uh, uh, carry on, sir. I'm just saying, try it once. Islamophobia is real, especially after 9-11. But again, this is trauma. Trauma brings up uh, 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 things that we're not willing to deal with, both before and, and those that are caused by it. I don't have a particularly neat bow to tie on to this. I do believe that uh, we are experiencing a trauma right now. This one is far uh, much of a, a, a lower boil. It is a steady drumbeat. We are probably internalizing a lot more of it. 9-11 was a gigantic rock dropped into the middle of a fairly still pond. And this is a seven-month hailstorm. But the lesson then is the same as it is now. And now that we're deep into backcountry on this crazy uh, race that we're coming into the home stretch of, just know this. That I, I, I can't speak for anybody outside of our community. I can't speak for anybody that is outside my earshot. But I would appeal to each and every one of you guys that all we have is each other. And I mean especially when we disagree politically. Try to find our humanity. Try to find our shared humanity. Because we are always at our worst when we let our fear tear into what is ultimately the greatest gift any of us could have been given. The gift of life in our moment in history with each other. Politics. All right. 
Uh, I want to thank everybody for being a part of this show. I want to thank everybody for supporting it. I want to thank everybody for putting your money uh, where your mouth is and making sure that independent political analysis and journalism survives. Uh, thank you to everybody who's been like reaching out to their favorite podcasts and like suggesting me as a guest and stuff like that. I've actually gotten a few emails like that or, or Twitter uh, uh, at replies and, and it really does mean a lot. It, it means a lot that you guys believe what we're doing here is something special and it means the world that you go and support it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 gets you four episodes each and every week. This would be the last one you would get during the week. You get one Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Boom. Just that simple. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. They ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's a Friday, then we got to crack open that mailbag. You can send your feedback about the show uh, or just challenge me on a dumb point I made or literally just send me compliments or or just a, a recipe, whatever you want. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com for all of it. We begin with pain. What's the prescription? Pain. So question. On the economy, do you, uh, do you have a guest that you could bring on that discusses the Trump-inherited-Obama's-economy argument? Uh, yes, I've booked the guest. His name is me. Hi, me. What do you think about this? The economy's kind of like the weather. Yeah, it's... All right, here's my take on it. Politicians, there are economic factors that are outside of a politician's control. However... The economy is so powerful that it can affect the rise and fall of a politician's fortunes, specifically presidents. So what can a politician do? Like, is this just the weather? Is this just sometimes there's sunny days, sometimes there's cloudy days, but no matter what, there's weather? Yes, to a certain extent. I think that there are factors beyond a reasonable president's grasp that can drive the economy down. But there's also ways that a president can intentionally get in the way of the economy. And so the argument that Trump has always made is that it's not that the economy was bad. It was that we were going way slower than we should have. We should be doing better than we were under Obama and give me the reins and I'll supercharge it. And up until, you know, the COVID of it all, uh, things were, I mean, that's part of the reason why I thought he was going to be really hard to beat. Part of the reason why I think he is going to be really hard to beat is that people do remember, hey, there were, for a lot of Americans, sunny days before that once-in-a-century biblical flood. Fred writes, Checking in on the Virginia state election, and I saw, surprise, surprise, Kanye's on the ballot. No excuses for not voting now. Oh, Kanye. He, he, dabbled, his, he dabbled his Yeezy-clad toe into uh, political waters again over the last couple days. Uh, shouting out Candace Owens. 
Who knows if that's a statement of where he stands on the beef between Candace Owens and Cardi B, which uh, erupted over the weekend. John writes, I'd love to see you do a deep dive into the Electoral College. How does it work? What's the history behind it? Is it still relevant today? I'll share that I'm from Texas, and I often feel disenfranchised in the presidential elections. It isn't about the parties, because I voted different ways over the years. I've never felt that my vote makes a difference, because Texas always goes Republican. I've also had conversations with people that don't vote for the same reason. Because Texas isn't a swing state, the only time that presidential hopefuls come to town is for high-dollar private fundraisers. To be honest, we don't even see many campaign ads on TV. I'd love to hear your thoughts, or have an expert on the show for more information. Thanks to everyone. Uh, please keep up the great work and in informing and entertaining us through this election. John, if while I was reading that, you felt the hairs on the back of your neck go up, it is because there was a collective uh, torrent of expletives directed at you from Ohio, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Because you dared to say, oh, poor me, I don't get to watch campaign ads. Well, look them up on YouTube if you want, because they're dominating every single over-the-air transmission that anybody in those states I just mentioned are going to see between now and November 3rd. Everyone's going to memorize every single ad like that. It is, I mean, I love it. Because I get to be a tourist these days. I live in California where there aren't a lot of ads. And I don't watch a lot of over-the-air television. But when I was on the road for the primaries, I would just leave the TV on. Just, just so I could just catch one political ad after another. But I'm a sick weirdo. So uh, beyond our our how we've handled it, I, I should probably have on an electoral college guest. If even just to break it down. Because I think there are... Still a lot of, like, thoughts. We're in a very but-why-though phase in history. And the Electoral College is something that deserves a but-why-though. A new $3 patron writes, What are your thoughts on the promises-made-promises-kept campaign phrase? It feels to me like he's trying to take on Biden's bring-decency-back uh, bring message. Uh, I would say it's for his base. Well, promises made, promises kept, are that, that's as old as politics gets. If you're running as an incumbent, you are saying, especially as a change incumbent, you are saying, you brought me here for change. Here's how much I changed. Here's how much I can change in the future. The one thing that Trump can't be is a blowhard. And that's why some people who have abandoned him, like the super hardcore immigration right, uh, have abandoned him. Because they're like, oh, well... You know, the Ann Coulters of the world, I'm sure she'll come back home, but the Ann Coulters of the world are like, well, you said build a wall. You said deport illegals. Guess what you didn't do? Either of those things. But in general, he, he wants to sell that. And every, every incumbent wants to sell that. Matt, the CFA, writes, as always, I really enjoyed the most recent show. You mentioned profit-taking, though, in response to the most recent uh, jobs report as evidence that people are tempering their expectations. And I agree with the take, but I wanted to add a little nuance. Specifically, tempered expectations for the economy is a good thing. Even with the sell-off, the market is up 7.45% this year as of uh, September 4th. Historically, periods of economic contraction have resulted in steep sell-offs 
that last over multiple year periods. So as of last week, in a period of plummeting productivity and protracted unemployment and the uncertainty of COVID for many, the fact that the market was up 9.72 as of August 31st for the year is astonishing. So what could this mean? Well, possibly, number one, something has changed about the way we value companies fundamentally. Two, people are looking for temporary growth stability and found it in the U.S. market. Three, people aren't driven by consumerism that typically exists and have extra cash that they're putting to work. Four, stimulus printing has caused inflation that's being reflected in the price. Or five, speculation on productivity that historically hasn't materialized. These sorts of things are big reasons why the market moves independently to economic activity and create the discrepancy between, quote, Wall Street and, quote, Main Street that politicians love to comment on. Personally, I think the market is higher than it would settle at if the above factors didn't exist, but it's hard to identify how and when enthusiasm will wane. This is a lot of unnecessary additional thoughts on what you undoubtedly consider as a very small part of an otherwise very engaging episode, but I wanted to share my opinion as someone who looks at these sorts of things professionally. How dare you? How dare you, Matt, the chartered financial analyst, that you dare to bring in your actual knowledge into this house of hot takery? Into this barnyard of BS? I am here trying to sling my fully uninformed political and economic opinions as if I know some stuff and you come rolling in, giving us more information than we need. Thank you. And if you would like to join Matt and everybody else who wrote in, you can write in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our guest today is Anel Sheline. She is a research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a non-resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. You can follow her on Twitter, at Anel Sheline. Heads up one more time, since we recorded this episode, two things have happened. There was uh, also a drawdown of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and just today, reports from Israeli media are that Israel and Bahrain will normalize relations. So, with that being said, welcome to the show, Anel. Thanks so much for having me. So, the, the big news here is that the concerted effort by the Trump administration in the Middle East has now uh, uh, borne some fruit of a deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. Uh, what is the top line from your perspective on what this deal is and functionally what it means to Mideast policy? Yeah, so... Um you know, in in general, obviously, it is it is good to have better relations among countries in the Middle East. Um, this is good news for Israel and good news for the UAE. However, it is, I think, important to keep in mind that this is not a peace deal because these countries were not at war. You know, these countries were already engaged in security collaboration, various other forms of kind of a, a quiet relationship. And this is kind of just, you know, setting their Facebook status to now say in a relationship. <laughs> sure. Um, as opposed to it's complicated. Yeah. Um, and 
And so while while it is, you know, it's it's good news for um, the these these countries in terms of collaboration on tech and um, security issues. It's not really good news for the Palestinians because, you know, up to this point, the agreement among the Arab countries was that no Arab country would normalize relations with Israel until some deal recognizing Palestinians' rights, which was usually understood and, and specified as a two-state solution. Yeah. Um, and uh, at this point now, it, it has been interesting. There's been more of an acknowledgement that the the likelihood of a two-state solution is is increasingly small and so rethinking perhaps a one-state solution but again it would need to be a situation in which israel recognizes the fundamental rights of palestinians and um you know no longer sort of treats them as as these kind of a population under occupation that's not allowed to move freely especially in gaza has has very limited access to any kind of you know, healthcare, food access, even, um, again, the, the situation there needs to be remembered. Uh, we, we, we can't sort of ignore the extent to which Palestinians have been, um, repeatedly sort of screwed over by these, these various, um, situations. So this is yet another example of the Palestinians rights not being acknowledged. And so this is not kind of solving the Palestinian issue, Sure, but at the same time, I think it is it is important to because this is a signal of the way that countries throughout the region have these covert relationships with Israel. So, you know, initially there was a lot of talk about the thought that maybe Bahrain would also normalize, maybe Oman would normalize. These are both countries, you know, in in the, the, the GCC in the Persian Gulf that are both going through financial difficulty right now. And the thought was that by normalizing with Israel, that would perhaps allow them greater access to perhaps economic support, especially from the United States. Um, Sudan also obviously went through a, um, you know, overthrew, got, got rid of their, their long-serving president last year and has subsequently been dealing with a certain amount of unrest. And so the thought was that perhaps Sudan would also normalize and then therefore open themselves up um, to getting additional support, especially from the United States, sort of in gratitude for their willingness to normalize. And, you know, the point is that all of these countries have these kind of sub rosa, you know, quiet relationships with Israel, but have not publicly normalized. And yeah. Although Secretary Pompeo went on this tour afterwards to try to meet with leaders of these countries, ostensibly in hopes of them normalizing, so far they have all signaled that that, that is not going to happen. And a lot of that does have to do with the fact that public opinion is still very strongly against Israel, you know, that that the injustice that is continues to be done to Palestinians remains a very salient issue for Arab publics. And so even if a lot of the leaders of these countries might think that it would be in their own interest to normalize with Israel, it would it would be potentially too destabilizing from the position of public opinion. Since the beginning of the Trump administration, which, which we'll just mark here because they're the ones driving the bus in terms of U.S. foreign policy, uh, it seems like there have been two major shifts from my amateur eyes in the Middle East. Number one, the increasing embrace of, well, the ascension and then embrace of Mohammed bin Salman in uh, Saudi Arabia, and then what is the, the evolving nature of what's happening with Iran, that those two states 
and where they go from here seems to say a lot for where uh, Mitty's policy goes and Americans, uh, America's interaction with it, with obviously Israel uh, always playing a major part. Uh, is is that correct, uh, or or is is there a more complex answer to that? I'm sure there's a more complex one, but uh, is that is that a general uh, a general uh, a correct way to look at it? I mean, it's it's important to think about the role of Iran and the role of Saudi Arabia, but you know, increasingly, and obviously, this is there's been a lot more attention around this lately. Um, you know, the tensions we're seeing in the Eastern Mediterranean with Turkey. Okay. Um, making making moves in contested waters, you know, Greece claims the that part of the Mediterranean based on sort of um, the, the fact that Greece, although those are Greek islands kind of in the eastern part of the Mediterranean, other than Cyprus, which is its own country. Um, and obviously, there's a complicated history with Greece and Turkey in terms of Cyprus there as well. Um, but especially this rivalry between the UAE and Turkey, which we have now seen playing out with the dispute with Greece, but also in Libya, where you have Turkey on one hand uh, supporting kind of one side in the Libyan conflict and the UAE, as well as um, Egypt and France um, supporting uh, General Haftar, sort of the rebel leader, warlord, who's who's trying to take control. So, so just to go back to your point about MBS and Iran, those remain crucial uh, actors as well. MBS being the, the de, de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince who will is likely to take over from his father, King Salman, um, who's young. He's 34. Yeah. So once he comes to power, he's going to be ostensibly in charge. He's going to be around for a while. He's <laughs> been around for a long time. And, you know, as people may remember when, you know, a few years ago um, in in kind of early 2018, Mohammed bin Salman or MBS came to the U.S., was sort of feted. Mm -hmm by Congress, by Silicon Valley, you know, seen as this transformational leader. People were very excited. The, the, um, the, the Silicon Valley prince, you know, he had uh, right, the magazine right. covers and, you know, uh, yeah. uh, wearing the suit and the new modern face of Saudi Arabia. Yes, yes. And and then obviously Jamal Khashoggi was murdered at under his orders. Um, we're coming up on the second anniversary of Khashoggi's murder on October 2nd. Yeah. Um, although, and, although apparently there was a trial and eight unnamed people have been uh, named and punished. So uh, if anybody right. was wondering, they they indeed, like OJ, found the real killers. <laughs> right. Um, so so I think so MBS is, is an important figure. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think the American sort of political establishment initially was too willing to see him as this you know, reformer and mm. this transformational leader. And then, you know, the tide completely shifted. And now he's, you know, called Mohammed bin Bonsa. And yeah. he's just seen as this, you know, horrible leader. And I mean, the the truth is he's he's somewhere in the middle. I mean, obviously, he's done the, that act was horrific. But, you know, so have all Saudi leaders and so do leaders across the region. You know, this this is it's um it's important to keep in mind that although, although that was obviously an absolutely heinous act, um, the U.S. has to continue to engage with him. And moving forward, it will be in the U.S.'s interest to to sort of rethink our relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, I think moving forward, the United States needs to withdraw all forces from Saudi Arabia because it was the presence of U.S. forces that was a contributing motivator for Osama bin Laden to, to conduct 
Um, it's very sensitive for U.S. forces to be there. And it's unclear why why forces are there at all. I mean, moving forward, the United States needs to have a very different force posture in the region in general that, you know, it's, it's un, the, the Quincy Institute recently, I was a co-author on a report that came out about the need to fundamentally rethink our force posture in the Middle East. You know, the justification for why we maintain such a robust force presence in the Middle East is is really not backed up by the facts that, you know, we've learned from almost 20 years of the war on terror that a military presence is not really effective as a, a counter-terror measure. Instead, you know, we need good police work, we need good governance. Um, but the presence of an occupying military force tends to generate a lot of acts of terrorism and, and resistance. Um, and then the other justification of oil that the United States needs to be in the region in order to protect access to oil resources. Again, it, it's just it's it, there. It's not true anymore. The U.S. is no longer dependent on Persian Gulf oil. Actors yeah. that are independent on Persian Gulf oil, like China, should be taking a larger role in securing those resources. And and again, the the United States should no longer subsidize cheap oil for the world anyway. That if we're subsidizing anything, we should be trying to encourage greater use of renewables. And and to stop incentivizing other countries to continue to burn cheap oil, um, and and let the rest of the world take more responsibility for for securing those resources. Real quick to go back to MBS, is the reason that the United States has to stay engaged with him any more complicated than he's that young and that country is that powerful in the region, and either you're going to let him go or you're going to be engaged with him. Essentially, yes, that I mean, and it's it's also important to keep in mind Saudi Arabia is the, the Middle East in general is is a multipolar region. You know, you yeah. have Saudi Arabia has, you know, is is the largest um, country by population and, and geography. Um, but the UAE, which has a tiny population and a small geography, is is hugely wealthy and has a powerful military. Um, Iran, you know, we, we shouldn't overinflate the Iran threat. I mean, their GDP is smaller than New Jersey's. Um, but, you know, they have a large population. They're increasingly diverse, diversifying their economy, in part, uh, sort of ironically, as a result of sanctions, because they can't sell their oil as easily. We're actually yeah. sort of helping them to get off of oil. Um, which is good for the Iranians, um, but maybe wasn't the intention of the Trump administration to sort of help them <laughs> develop their economy. Um, and also Turkey, another large and powerful actor with a large population and, and a large geography. So so another another point that we make in the report is often U.S. present military presence in the Middle East is justified by the need to prevent a regional hegemon from emerging that could you know, throw off, um, potentially could, could throw off kind of the world's access to Middle Eastern oil. And that would be very destabilizing, even though the U.S. is no longer dependent. Obviously, yeah. we have an interest in maintaining sort of stable oil prices. Um, but the point there just being that th there are several powerful actors in the region and no single actor can dominate. So the idea that Saudi Arabia is so powerful is like it is, but it, its power is countered by these other other regional players. Um, so again, in thinking about Mohammed bin Salman, um, we, we should give him some credit in terms of what he has done in Saudi Arabia. The last time I was there was last year, and it was quite impressive the, the extent 
to, you know, again, like it's, it's tempered. It's like Saudi Arabia was starting from so, so far behind sure. in terms yeah. of yeah. Men not being able to drive and no gender mixing that, that to now allow women to drive and to have gender mixing is transformational for, for Saudi Arabia, but still it's only just starting to kind of reach the level of the other Gulf countries. Yeah. Um, obviously still deeply conservative society. I think for anybody that would be looking into the Middle East for a a, a Twitter level woke leader uh, uh, that would match all of our personal Western philosophies, you're going to be looking for a very long time. Uh, uh, th that is that is not something that is is in abundance there. Uh, right. And just one other point to make ahead. on MBS. Yeah. I think it's it's important to to be aware of. He he knows what the West is looking for. He mm -hmm. knows that things like women's rights you know, or even just sort of nom, you know, oh, they can drive now, but, you know, they also, <laughs> I mean, everyone in Saudi Arabia lacks, you know, basic rights of freedom of expression or, yes. you know, any kind of political representation. So again, it's a deeply authoritarian society. Um, but Mohammed bin Salman is very sensitive to his international image, partly because he knows he needs foreign direct investment to make this transition. I mean, Saudi Arabia can no longer afford to have half its population sit at home and not work, meaning the women, while the government pays the salaries of the men and, and foreign workers do all the actual labor. So it's the fact that they've, they can no longer afford this deeply inefficient economic system that is motivating a lot of these changes. This might be a little bit of a, a gossipy question for somebody of your academic stature, but uh, uh, do we have any sense that MBS understands that it was a bad move to bone saw a critic for talking wild stuff in a group chat? <laughs> well, I remember when I was there in early 2019 and, you know, so the, the murder had happened a few months before and I got questions from, from Saudi colleagues, essentially like, I mean, the U.S., you know, people are killed in the U.S. all the time. Obviously there was already bad press about, you know, police killings and they were just sort of like, why are you guys so up in arms about this one dude? Yeah. <laughs> like, people dialed into, they're like, we're killing lots of people in Yemen right now. Like, you're aware of that, right? Like, why yeah. aren't you more mad about Yemen? Um, and I, I just, I tried to explain that, you know, Khashoggi, partly he, he, he was a powerful voice and he had friends with powerful voices. And so I think especially initially, you know, the Washington Post reiterating, you know, like like this was not allowed to sort of fade away in the way that, you know, other injustices, you know, there's initially a hullabaloo and then people kind of forget and the news cycle moves on. I think, you know, Hashogi, you luckily had people in positions to kind of reiterate yeah. the, the heinousness of that act. Um, and and also just, you know, the 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 degree of the sort of um, just the horrible nature of oh, the way yeah. in which he was killed, you know, was also milked by the Turkish press that they sort of released little bits of information yeah. little by little to kind of keep it in the news cycle until it got to a point where the American public had just been exposed over and over that this was just kind of a byword for, for how horrible um, Mohammed bin Salman is. So, but but we have we have no sense that that he under that he was like, oh, you want to know what all the all the, the 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 magazine covers and all the the pictures of me shaking hands with Mark Zuckerberg and bringing in professional wrestling and letting women wrestle like like that all takes a hit. All that effort takes a hit 
when you kill somebody who is a part of the free press in America, which might not be something that is fully understood in in Saudi Arabia, at least on the same level. Yes. Yeah. But but again, I think, you know, they probably had a fairly cynical understanding that, you know, American, the American media moves on. And I and I suspect that it, if it had been if it had been someone else, I mean, even for if, example, if, if, he, if, if he were not a contributor for The Washington Post, we would it would not have lasted more than 48 hours. It would have been it would have been a thing that you would have cared about. It would have been a thing that other people who follow the Mideast would have cared, cared about. But it's not like exactly. MBS doesn't have a history of a brutal heavy hand in the past. It just didn't happen to people that have a byline in the post. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's also important to keep in mind that subsequently there's been news that's come out about Saad al-Jabri, uh, who was essentially he's uh, if people have heard about it, it's the fact that he's a Saudi, not really a dissident, but just he's in self-imposed exile in Canada. And Mohammed bin Salman has been trying to get him back uh, recently in ways that were similar to to Hashogi, you know, sort of initially saying, oh, you know, you have to come to an embassy. Yeah. And then later on kind of threats, like if you don't come back and he he has to Mohammed bin Salman has detained um, Al-Jabri's two remaining children, adult children in Saudi Arabia. They're incommunicado detained. You know, it's unclear uh, what has happened to them. And so obviously this, this individual is in a very difficult position, um, knowing that his children are detained, but also knowing that if he, if he were to go back to Saudi Arabia, he would probably also be killed. Um, in part because he had access to information in the transition from when Mohammed bin Salman was taking over as crown prince from Mohammed bin Nayef, who was the previous crown prince, who had been very instrumental in sort of Saudi Arabia's counter-terror efforts and its partnership with the United States, especially in the early 2000s when the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were obviously both very concerned about countering terrorism and both uh, dealing with sort of, you know, threats that, that had not previously been particularly well contained. Um, and Saudi Arabia was seen as one, well, specifically Mohammed bin Nayef and his uh, sort of uh, one of the people who was working with him was Saad al-Jabri, um, both of whom are have, you know, subsequently their senators wrote a letter saying, you know, just the importance of Saad al-Jabri to the counterterror efforts. Like he's a high profile figure who has friends in Washington who recognize the extent to which he helped um, in counterterror efforts that help to protect Americans. But he knows even more potentially about where sort of bodies were buried and where, you know, information that Mohammed bin Salman does not want coming out, especially not before he potentially becomes king in yeah. case it could jeopardize his ascension to the throne. Uh, one last question in terms of, uh, and we can, we can spin off of Saudi Arabia from here, but as the influence of Middle East Oil has waned and America has now become more of an exporter than an importer in that uh, specific area. The one area that certainly MBS and the Saudis have realized that they can have influence is using some of their wealth to fund other companies. The Saudi Wealth Fund has money in Boeing, Citigroup, Facebook, Disney, Bank of America, and I believe Uber as well. Are there other Mideast countries that are similarly realizing that investing in some of these uh, in, in the American free market is a way that they can continue to keep influence in America? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I think investments are crucial. All, I mean, also just think tank funding. I mean, here in D.C., a lot of think tanks get a lot of money from the Gulf countries. Um, and, it, you know, it's 
it's a thing. It happens. <laughs> it's, it's not only, it's not only from the Middle East. I mean, you know, we have uh, Taiwan, for example. You know, funding various think tanks. I'm I'm sure plenty of country. You know, and the thing is, uh, there's not a sufficient transparency for think tank funding. So, you know, my think tank got a lot of attention and some criticism for getting money from both uh, the Charles the the Charles Koch foundation as well as George Soros so kind of this right wing left wing sure. collaboration um but you know that that we're very transparent about our funding we don't take foreign funding um and we're we're working a colleague of mine is working on an on an initiative to to make it more of a norm that think tanks need to reveal their funders so that there's a there's more of an understanding about perhaps um just where their money is coming from all right uh news that broke this week is uh, that there will be a drawdown from 5,200 American troops in Iraq to 3,000 troops in Iraq. How significant of a drawdown is this? And does it, to your point of rethinking the American troop positions in the Middle East, uh, does is that significant? Or is it just kind of cosmetic because it's an election year and Donald Trump uh, realizes that being the ending forever war president is something that's moving the needle. Um, <laughs> so, so it, it is to be applauded. It is, you know, particularly getting troops out of Iraq is important because it's unclear why they're there. They were initially permitted to go in to fight the Islamic state, which has been essentially defeated. You know, people say, well, you know, it came back before it could come back again. And the answer is, OK, well, we can go back in again. But that doesn't justify this sort of permanent presence there, um, especially because the troops in Iraq are, you know, were part of one of the contributing factors that almost started the war in early January between Iran and the U.S. when when the U.S. assassinated Qasem Soleimani. Um, and so getting troops out of Iraq, I think, is important for helping to prevent a possible situation where the U.S. finds itself um, escalating conflict, potentially to war, which, again, the American people have demonstrated that they do not want. No. You know, yeah. not only not only was this a, an election, you know, a, a platform point for Trump. This was also a key point in in Obama's popularity that that Americans are really tired of spending our blood and treasure in the Middle East on these endless wars that are, you know, it's really unclear how exactly this is serving U.S. interests by continuing to have troop presence here. And again, putting them in a position where potentially they could be sort of the, the um, you know, the if their their deaths essentially would be the fa contributing factor to a larger conflict. So I do think the timing is interesting. The fact that Trump is doing this now, whereas he could have done this at any earlier point in his presidency, um, you know, especially kind of in the past year or so, I worry may just be uh, an election talking point. Um, but, you know, in general, I think Trump so far seems to understand that that is popular, um, that withdrawing troops is something that that tends to play well, not only with his base, but with the American public in general. And so my hope is that perhaps by having done this and hopefully getting some positive feedback from it, he may then be further incentivized to to continue to draw down troops, hopefully to zero in Iraq um, and to to finally end the war in Afghanistan. 
How many people do we have in Afghanistan? Do we is, is that is that a publicly available figure or troop levels are notoriously difficult to pin down at this point? You know, we don't. I, I'm not sure of the exact numbers off the top of my head. Um, it's it's not insignificant though. I mean, yeah, we we are still at war there. Um, you know, there had been sort of excitement. Uh, that, you know, perhaps a deal with with the Taliban was coming down and maybe the U.S. was finally going to get out and that just hasn't happened. Um, and, you know, and I do understand the position for, of, of many people who feel that, well, you know, if we get out now, what was the point of all the, the, the deaths there and all the destruction and, you know, to, to get out now is, is to admit defeat. But I think if we take anything from Afghanistan, it's that, well, if we wait another two years, five years, it's unlikely we're going to be in a better position then. We are most likely to be in a worse position. And so getting out now is better than five years from now. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, to your point with Obama, he, he ran on end the war in Iraq and intensify the war in Afghanistan, win the war in Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, uh, now 12 years later, I don't know if we're any closer uh, uh, now than, uh, than, than we were then. Uh, right. But also it's like, you know, the 5,200 troops now down to, now down to 3,000. Uh, I am personally of the mind that there's not a whole lot of, uh, uh, good deeds done in in uh, uh, Washington that is that comes without pressure. So if the pressure is hitting the president of the United States to say that there are uh, there's not a whole lot of public appetite to continue to have uh, uh, people in uh, service uh, people in Iraq, then eh, good. I mean, even even if it is a, a callow, cynical uh, uh, political play. Yeah, yeah. I I just checked. It looks like, according to the Brookings Institution, current troop levels from last month in Afghanistan were seven thousand U.S. troops. Wow. So more. So more in Afghanistan still than there are in in Iraq, and now significantly more if if uh, these troops are coming home from Iraq. Wow. And it's gone on longer. That's crazy. One last thing before we go that also popped up this week is. Something that I thought was empty rhetoric from the Trump administration and the sources that speak to uh, the D.C. press, the idea that Donald Trump could be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, and yet he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his Israel-UAE uh, peace uh, uh, process. Uh, uh, is this serious? Does he have a chance to win the Nobel Peace Prize? I I mean yes, <laughs> yes. Um, looking this up right now, according to NobelPrize.org, there are 318 candidates for Nobel Peace Prize for 2020. So the fact that you know he's one uh, of which 211 are individuals and 107 are organizations. So he's one of 211 individuals nominated. Yeah. Um. Obviously, he's a, a, a ostensibly one of the highest profile individuals. I, nominated. I, would, I would say probably the most high profile person nominated. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. I don't know who else would be carrying a higher Q rating internationally than the president of the United <laughs> States. Um. So, you know, the I guess and again, I don't have any particular insights into the once you're nominated, the process by which the, the prize is awarded. 
Um, you know, I mean, I was I was reading the justification of the Norwegian parliamentarian who who submitted the nomination on Trump's behalf, saying that Trump has broken a 39 year streak of American presidents either starting a war or bringing the United States into an international armed conflict, which, you know, I mean, that is good. It's great that so far Trump has managed to not get the U.S. into any new conflicts. Um, And, you know, I mean, he's he's claimed to be, you know, ending endless wars in a way that is false. I mean, he has not really drawn down troops, you know, when he made the announcement last year about like pulling troops out of Syria. And then he was like, oh, wait, never mind. They're going to stay there to protect the oil. He made the announcement of pulling troops out of Germany. But wait, never mind. Most of them are just going to go elsewhere in Eastern Europe. So he'll make these announcements and then either, you know, he'll get enough pushback from his yeah. advisors that that say this is a bad idea, which which, again, is is itself problematic. I think it would be great if if his initial impulse is we should have fewer troops abroad. I think it would be great if he was able to sort of to follow carry, through on that. Yeah, great to follow through on that. Um, if, on the other hand, he kind of you know says something and then doesn't really have a plan for following it up and wasn't that committed to it in the first place, and so things just move on because he doesn't actually care and he just kind of likes to say these things. It's you know it's really unclear. I don't I don't really know um, the ways in which his his sort of various impulses are either carried out or stymied. Do you think that that statement holds water, though, the, 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 the Norwegian politicians, that he's the first president in 39 years to not start or intensify a war? Well, I mean, we know Obama had to get involved to counter ISIS. Yeah. Obviously, Bush started two major wars. I think, wars. yeah, we know, we know, yeah, yeah. One, one, <laughs> that I think, one, one that I think Ralph Nader would have started, but the other one was definitely all him. <laughs> Right, right. Um, you know, Clinton obviously mostly his involvement was in the Balkans. Yeah. Um, but and and you know other there were other instances too. I mean, that's that's just and, sort of and the, Iraq you know, with like Operation Desert Fox, but he didn't put boots on the ground. And and then you know his predecessor Bush won with obviously the Gulf, Gulf War, War. Yeah. and then Reagan, um, lots of Cold War involvement there. Um, although I'm trying to think, I mean, like Granada, this is, this is before I was born. Now we're so really, now we're really um, getting in the weeds here. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, um, on proving the 39 year streak. Well, what does that bring us back to then? If we get to I think Carter, the, the, the point the parliamentarian made was that Carter was the last U S president to not initiate any yeah. new conflict armed, you know, intervention or, or wars. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, that seems accurate. I mean, so I guess the, the, the critic might say, so I guess that means just like uh, uh, drone, psych, uh, drone striking Soleimani into dust, like that doesn't count. Like, right. I mean, I guess that's, right. that's just a, a thing, but there's no boots on the ground and, and they're not deploying like that maybe that is an act of international interventional uh, interventionalism but when the dust settles the dust settles there it's not a, a base and and uh, uh everything that comes along with a forward position 
Right. I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, Trump inherited a very forward deployed military that he claimed he was going to draw back. Yeah. And, you know, and, and these wars and has really done almost nothing to actually make good on those campaign promises. And so I, I think, you know, just the fact that he has not started any new fires doesn't mean that there's not still this sort of raging fire that he has done very little to combat in the form of ongoing U.S. Yeah. boots on the ground, you know, fighting abroad, as well as, you know, covert operations throughout Africa. I mean, a lot of uh, you make a very good point about like, so how exactly are we defining this? Because, you know, there there have been reports coming out of like, oh, you know, a soldier was killed in Niger. And it's like, wait, we had soldiers in Niger. Like, these are, <laughs> Um, there are many ways in which the the forever wars are being conducted um, increasingly in ways that are sort of outside the control of Congress, um, which itself needs to do a better job of of you know reasserting its control. You know specifically the the 2001 and 2002 authorization for the use of military force should both be rescinded or significantly scaled back. Congress really needs to step up and take responsibility as as the official you know the power. The, the branch of government granted that war-making power by the Constitution, they need to do their jobs. Mm. Congress doing their jobs. Can you imagine? What would they even look like <laughs> doing it? Adorable. Uh, all right. Uh, 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 I'm so glad that we were able to touch on that, and I'm so glad that we were able to have Dr. Anel Sheline as our guest. She's a research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a non-resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Check out her latest article on Politico. Trump's win is a loss for the Middle East, and you can follow her on Twitter. Uh, Anel Sheline. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, friends, at the end of the tour, when the road disappears, if there's any more people around, when the tour runs aground, and if you're still around, then we'll meet at the end of the tour. The engagements are booked through the end of the world, so we'll meet at the end of the tour. I feel like I've realized my 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 goal now is I just want to age into a very uh, a Bill Waltony kind of future. I just want to increasingly get more and more peace and love, peace and love, peace and love, uh, uh, and and just randomly do things like that and just quote band lyrics that nobody cares about. But the people that really like they might be giants. Oh, they'll love it. Know what I love? The Titanic ten dollar tier. You can head on over to uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com if you want to join their ranks. They go as follows. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, D-Laser, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Vote for Trump 2020, Martin, Government Unfiltered, Spawn, Andres, Neil, Archie, IPMP, Logan, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Milius, Adam, Olin and Angela, Christopher, DL, Stephen, Ryan, Chad, IPMP.com, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Brandon, John Terrica, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Oh, I sense a meme coming about. <laughs> I sense a meme coming about. Glenn Wolfband, Brand Chili Scoop, Kevin. Dustin, Brad, Daycat, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Lindsay, The Jen, Angela, Princess, Mateau, 
Ben and Ellen. You want to join their ranks? Again, takepoliticsseriously.com. Uh, a reminder, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Next Monday, our last archival debate that we're going to review that doesn't involve our two contestants from uh, the, the, the new debates at the end of the month. Uh, so this is Bush vs. Gore, 2000. <sighs> Go ahead and follow my account right now, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Justin R. Young, if you want to get on my newsletter, the free political newsletter, it's freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, man. They're out of here talking about politics. But this, this is the only show that talks about still going in many ways it's going better john f kennedy was about to do what he does best run for president and win a second term until an assassin's bullet killed the sitting president opening the biggest political power vacuum in modern history and everyone wants a piece of the action my name is Justin Robert Young, and in the new season of my political history podcast, Raise the Dead, we tell the epic tale of 1964. Race riots, vile television ads, a secret Senate sex den, and the most famous legislation to come out of Congress in a generation. Moments that have molded and shaped our modern political world. News dies and becomes history. But tonight... We raise the dead. Vicious, mean, uh, dirty, low-down stuff about uh, all this. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>